Welcome one and all to the third episode of the Hard As Nails podcast brought to you by Outsider.ie, Islands Adventure Magazine. My name is Kevin and uh, you are about to be blown away by the guest that we have lined up for this episode. She's an award-winning adaptive adventurer, an accomplished public speaker with a nothing-is-going-to-keep-me-down attitude after surviving a rare form of bone cancer. She's undertaken several grueling challenges to raise awareness uh, for this rare disease and to highlight the importance of exercise for rehabilitation it is the one and only nikki bradley nikki we are so incredibly grateful to have you on this episode of the hard as nails podcast thank you for joining us Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, Nikki, I'm sure many of our listeners will have uh, come across your story of being diagnosed with uh, Ewing's strichoma as a teenager back in uh, 2002. For those that might not know the story in its entirety, can you inform them ab- about your diagnosis? My doctor actually said that mm-hmm. I was most likely one of less than 10 worldwide to have experienced oh, the right. whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's so Ewing's sarcoma, the year I was diagnosed, there was 16 others in Ireland diagnosed with Ewing's and of those 16 I don't know how many actually kind of pulled through that and the the survival rate isn't brilliant in Mm -hmm. the first couple of years and so to go back to that initial time it was um, quite shocking to be honest it was like two weeks before Christmas Mm. um, and I suppose instantly everything changed Mm. Um, you know I went from I think I was 16 at the time um, went from just a normal teenage girl to a cancer patient yeah. instantly. So well, I suppose what do you do with that kind of news? You've no real choice but to, to get on with it and figure out a way to get through it. Mm. Um, so my family and I kind of have to do that, really. Yeah. Uh, treatment started in January of 2003 and lasted for about a year and a half. I had chemotherapy, radiotherapy and um, invasive surgery in the UK. Mm. I'm obviously based in Ireland. Um, so even going over to the UK for surgery was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Going to a hospital that I wasn't used to, you know, there were so many little things that other cancer patients would kind of be able to resonate with there that, you know, when you're in a cancer ward, mm. it's the, the cleanest surroundings you'll ever see in your life. You'll come back to your own house and just look at it with a look of disdain, thinking <laughs> it's filthy. Mm. Because, um, you know, the ward I was in in St. Vincent's in Dublin, they didn't even allow fresh flowers in mm. because the chance of infection is so high with people going through treatment that they have to take absolutely every precaution. So, you know, life during that time was very different and also very difficult at times. But I have to say... There were also a lot of moments of happiness mm. that I didn't expect. Um, and there are memories that I've made during that time and people that I met that helped me become the person I am today. So I've become very much a believer that, you know, everything happens for a reason. Mm. And the radiotherapy that you received, Nikki, it destroyed your, your hip uh, and you had to undergo two total hip replacements as a result. How did you manage to deal with those two significant moments in your life, which I'm sure must have been devastating? Yeah, the radiotherapy side effect really took me by surprise because even people that haven't gone through a cancer diagnosis probably are aware of most of the side effects um, associated with chemotherapy. So, Mm. you know, you lose your hair and there's other big side effects that come along with that. But radiotherapy, for me anyway, was so hassle-free. It was unbelievable. The the biggest thing that I had to do during that time was move to um, Kildare Mm -hmm. to be closer to St. Luke's Hospital in Dublin uh, because I live in Donegal. 
so it wasn't going to be suitable. I had to travel in and out every day for 20 minutes. Mm. Um, so I moved down with my grandmother for six weeks, which was a lovely experience in itself to be able mm. to spend so much time with my grandmother. So it really was hassle-free. I went into St. Luke's, which is such a lovely um, hospital, I have to say. It's a weird thing to say, but it is a lovely mm-hmm. hospital. Um, they've been great of their way to make your time there as kind of, I suppose, enjoyable as it can be. So mm-hmm. I went in for 20 minutes every day. It didn't, there was no pain associated with it at all. So that was my only experience of radiotherapy at the time. But because of that 20 minutes of laser treatment every day, mm-hmm. it led to pretty much everything that's happened since. Um, long story short, it destroyed my hip, as you said. Um, it just it was going into the an area where my bone was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. After okay. a couple of years after that, I started experiencing quite a bit of pain. Um, it was in 2006 and it happened extremely quickly. I was sitting at the table doing coursework. Um, I had gone back to, to adult education because I wanted to do my leaving certificate and go on to college. Mm-hmm. And I felt a twinge in my hip. And by that evening, I was in hospital in morphine. And mm-hmm. it eventually resulted after a year to that a year after that, that initial day of pain, mm-hmm. um, I had to have my hip replaced, mm-hmm. which was an unusual thing and a, quite a devastating thing for, at the time I was 21, mm-hmm. for a 21-year-old to have it because it's an operation associated with an older person. Yeah. Um, so I had no kind of experience of that type of surgery. Um, like, well, I'd obviously had my tumour removed initially, mm-hmm. but um, it was just very unusual. I had to have my house fitted out with equipment that allowed me to, you know, sit down in chairs that mm-hmm. had to be a certain height. So it was, everything was just so, so surreal. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of years after that, again, that hip actually got infected mm-hmm. um, and had to be taken out while I was actually in Australia mm-hmm. and put um, back in, a, a second hip replacement back in the following year. So a lot of very serious, I suppose, outcomes yeah. stemming from 20 minutes a day for six weeks. Mm, sure. Well, Nikki, we've been speaking about uh, things that are quite uh, doom and gloom for, for, for most of our yeah. listeners. Say that, But you still come across, I mean, we've been only speaking a few minutes now, you come across still as a as a highly jovial, upbeat type of, of person. How do you keep yourself positive during these darker moments in your life? There's a couple of things that happened that it was all thanks to my family. My family has been absolutely brilliant from day one. Mm. Um, and once we got over the initial shock, it, we we made, as a, as a unit, we made the decision to just make the whole thing just a routine. Yeah. You know, build it into part of our lives. And once you do that, you're taking the fear away. And then once the fear goes away, it's so much easier to deal with. So that's pretty much what we did. So instead of thinking... Every three weeks, I had to go down to Dublin for chemotherapy. You know, we would just think, right, you know, we have to go to Dublin tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I'd pack my bag. And it's, it allowed for little funny moments to happen because you weren't constantly thinking of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done that ever since. Um, I'm also really easily amused, like really easily amused, <laughs> <laughs> almost like a child. So, um, <laughs> so it allowed me to find, you know, funnier moments in my day-to-day and um, mm. that possibly others going through the same treatment may not have picked up on. So 
that's just that's just always been part of my personality. Mm. So I suppose being immature really has helped me. <laughs> um, and then obviously, like as time went on, I made a couple of big decisions um, that have allowed me just to look at things from a slightly different perspective. Yeah. So I mentioned that I had my hip taken out while I was in Australia. There's quite a lot more to that story. Um, I was actually on a flight on my way to Australia when the infection that was in my first hip prosthesis mm. actually broke through the surface of my skin, which mm. sounds as horrific as it was. <laughs> yeah. um, it was extremely painful. And with every passing minute, I was flying further away from my family. Yeah. So I had to make a decision on that flight to just find a way to get through this. I knew that there was something wrong with my hip for a long time, as did my doctors, mm. but because the infection was one that could so easily hide, they couldn't pinpoint it, even though they did every scan and x-ray that they could, they couldn't pinpoint the problem. Mm. So um, I found myself in Australia and had to deal with these, kind of, as I said, huge things. Mm. Um, and when I had my hip taken out over there, I made a decision that from that point onwards, I was just going to get on with it. Yeah. So I said, whatever happened from that point, if I had to face further operations, if even bigger things came along, I would just go with the flow mm. and take everything with a pinch of salt. Mm -hmm. And that way of thinking really has, it sounds cliche, but it really has changed my life. Mm. And I've been able to deal with huge setbacks with a really kind of light frame of mind mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that I you know stick my head in the sand and I don't deal with it I definitely do deal with what's happening yeah. but I don't look at it as a big end of the world situation I now look at it as okay that's just another setback you know how soon before I can get back on my feet mm -hmm. and by thinking that way it just allows me to kind of find a bit of happiness along the way yeah and it's very easy i suppose you you know to just accept and lie down and, and give up especially when you overcame a, a ewing sarcoma but it had the reverse effect on you uh, nikki it, it gave you a bit of a kick in the butt because uh, it ended up uh, you setting up your own foundation fighting fit uh, for for ewings tell us more about that and why you felt it was something that you needed to do so that's actually, that stemmed from a conversation with my consultant in Dublin. Mm -hmm. I went down for what I thought was a routine uh, meeting just to see what else we were going to try. This was in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and it was after about six months of having regular trials. Team. I'd had spinal cord stimulation, epidurals, mm -hmm. nerve blocks. I'd had quite a lot of big procedures, all of which failed. And when I was received the appointment um, to meet with my consultant. I genuinely thought it was just to have another one of these meetings to plan something else. Mm. But when I went in, he sat me down and said that we'd actually come to the end of the road of what they could do for me. Mm -hmm. um, that there wasn't really anybody in Ireland that was set up to offer anything further. And this is where he said I was most likely one of less than 10 worldwide to have just gone through this full series of events to have had two total right hip replacements. Yeah. Um, because what I didn't mention is that the second hip replacement that I eventually had mm -hmm. when I came back from Australia failed. Wow. Um, it was custom built in the UK and it was designed to fuse with my natural bone and become part of my body. Mm -hmm. um, but because the hip joint itself, the hip bone, was the blood supply and everything was dead at this point, again caused by the radiotherapy, the prosthesis didn't it remained separate and I had was left with essentially a loose hip. Mm. So I lost quite a lot of leg length because there was nothing keeping it in place. So it actually moved up and in towards my spine. Yeah. So they had 
you know, this was causing obviously immense pain and that's where the trial treatments came in. So after all of that and then trying the absolute best, they just, they, they didn't know. They were drawing a blank. They did not know what else they could do. Yeah. Well. So I left that meeting quite shocked, um, but also with feelings that I wasn't expecting. I, I'll never forget it. I walked out of that building um, and just sat on the wall for a minute mm. and just thought about everything. Um, it was like something from a film. <laughs> I just It was a big kind of dramatic moment of me just sitting in the sun, having my moment of realisation. Mm. And I just thought, you know, I'm too young to just accept this and become miserable, become mm. depressed and become cynical and bitter. I did not want to be that person because I never was. You know, when I was younger, I was always happy-go-lucky and I didn't want cancer to be my downfall. Yeah. So a cancer and its aftermath. So I just decided that, right, as I'd said to myself in Australia, you know, this is just something else that I have to get on with and have to roll with the punches. Mm. So I gave myself enough time to kind of let it sink in. I gave myself a couple of weeks just to let that news just do its thing. And then I decided, right, what could I do now? What could I take on myself to see if I could help myself? And I'd read a couple of articles and I'd heard from friends that, you know, exercise seemed to be something that helped with pain. Mm. Um, Physiotherapy is always something that you're given after um, any operation. You know, in all the hospitals I've been in, I've visited many physiotherapy units um, to try and help with, you know, rehabilitation. So I met with a physiotherapist and a personal trainer and the three of us sat down and said, okay, so if I was to attempt, let's just say a three-month vigorous exercise program mm. to see if it'll help with pain you know is this something worth trying so we said we would give it the three months and if it didn't work there was absolutely no harm done um, I had nothing to lose as far as I was concerned mm. so we did that and I went up to my gym three times a week and met with my personal trainer and he put me through put me through the ringer and I went home and I was usually in pain for the rest of the day but it was a different type of pain mm-hmm. it was muscle pain okay. as opposed to my normal hip pain mm-hmm. So even that difference started changing how I thought about pain in my head. And before I realized, before I knew what was happening, I was putting up with a lot more general pain that I was able to put up with before. Mm. I started realizing that a lot of what I did in the past was down to my own frame of mind. Yeah. So if I was sore in the past, I would have given in to that pain and lay down on my bed or, you know, sat in the chair and just totally given into it and just thought, oh, well, it's hip pain. I, I can't do anything about it. Mm. But going to the gym, I started just toughening up a little bit, to be honest, and putting up with a bit more of that type of pain. Mm. But that way of thinking, I was able to move forward. So the three months came and went. Very short time after that, I was off all my pain medication. And the campaign came around within during this time. Mm-hmm. So I decided to set up Fighting Fit for Ewings. I set it up as an awareness campaign um, and it's been an awareness campaign ever since mm. to design to highlight the importance of exercise for rehabilitation and also to raise awareness for Ewings. Um, and I wanted it to be fun because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the, the early part of my story has been quite depressing mm-hmm. um, and quite serious. So I wanted something that was all about fun and about challenge in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set up physical challenges regularly that I would participate in as part of the campaign. So the first thing I did was climb Muckish Mountain here in Donegal. Mm-hmm. Um, a climb that took me about six hours and I was in absolute agony afterwards. Sure. 
but I was happier than I'd been in a long time mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I realised, as I said there a moment ago, that I was able to put up with a lot more pain. Mm-hmm. So once I did one challenge and deemed it a success, that was the start of everything then. Mm. Um, and it's led to some absolutely amazing challenges ever since. Yeah, we'll get to those challenges in, in a moment. But Nikki, first of yeah. all, can you remember the, the precise moment when you thought that being an adaptive athlete is something that you could be good at? It wasn't really... When I started the, the campaign, it's, it wasn't even something that was on my radar. It was very much... Right, as a crutch user, because that's something that I didn't mention. During that meeting in 2013, I was told that I would remain on crutches for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So being a crutch user was all I saw myself as. And then doing these challenges was, you know, okay, so this is me trying to make the most of my crutches. And the transition from that into, okay, this is getting quite serious. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming a lot more resilient. I'm starting to think a bit more like an athlete. That mm-hmm. happened so gradually that it really took me by surprise. It was almost like I had to look back over everything I did to realize that, oh, hold on a minute, I've now moved from me to someone else. Mm. So there wasn't really an exact bang moment that I suddenly became someone different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was It was very much, it was that overall kind of mm mix of everything that turned me into I suppose who I am now. Mm, very interesting and you spoke about uh, exercising and how that helps you manage pain but it's also there to help you prepare for challenges can, can you give us a breakdown of the routine that you follow when it comes to, to exercising and, and, and maintaining fitness? Okay so at the moment and I'll talk about this in a second but I am preparing at the moment for my biggest challenge to date mm-hmm. and the training for that has been um, eventful um, it's been painful uh-huh. it's been frustrating um, but it's also been amazing so I train harder usually train harder for an event that, than I need to kind of be ready for if that makes sense mm-hmm. so in Donegal you know even in the, the height of summer you're most likely going to see a bit of rain because it's Donegal yeah. so uh, but in the winter you see cold winds uh, very strong winds rain hail sunshine, snow, all in one day. Mm. So um, when we climb, you know, my, my exercise regime involves obviously gym work. Um, I go to the gym. I try and go maybe three times a week. Okay. And in that time of being in the gym, I attend um, a class that's very, it, it's high volume and high impact. So from the moment you walk in, mm-hmm. you are doing, I suppose it's like high intensity interval training, that type of class mm. where you're on the go the whole time that type of training is very hard on my hip. Um, so I have to adapt it to suit, you know, my, my needs. But it still does leave me very sore for the rest of the day. But it's the only type of training I've found mm-hmm. that prepares me enough for challenges. Hmm. I've tried things like CrossFit and various other classes, but I think CrossFit isn't actually intense enough mm-hmm. for what I need. Okay. Because <laughs> the first half... I know that sounds very... <laughs> yeah, really, CrossFit is like pretty I'm intense, yeah. CrossFit's pain definitely isn't. Yeah. But what I found was that CrossFit, the first half of the class, is obviously just, it's, it's weightlifting. Yeah. And that pace was too slow for me. Um, you know, I needed to be on the go all the time because it, basically I need all of my muscles to yes. be firing. Um, mm. It allows me then to take a bit of pressure off my good leg, or sorry, my bad leg. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you're just doing weightlifting, for 
a long amount of time. It's it's a slower process, I suppose. Mm. So that's done three times a week usually. And then in between that, I'm doing a bit of road walking or mountain training. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that, that forces me onto the crutches for long periods of time because I have to toughen up my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, we were out last Thursday where we did, I think it was about 12 kilometres, which isn't that much, mm-hmm. but it took us six and a half hours to do 12 kilometres because oh. of the terrain yeah. we were walking across. We were going up and down quite large hills. We were crossing Bogland, which is in Donegal, but in Ireland in general, but especially in Donegal, is such tough terrain to cross on crutches. Um, I lost the base, you know, the tips of my crutches numerous times where they were just sucked into the ground. Um, And it was such a frustrating climb, but it's it's all part of it. Mm. Um, It helps as well, you know, that type of training where I'm not going to lie, it's not not fun. it helps mentally because mm. the challenge that I've come up in July is going to require a lot of mental strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the moment, I'm still I'm still training my mind along with my body, and it's it can be tough going, but mm. it's it's fun too. Yeah. Well, Nikki, speaking of uh, the challenges uh, that that you have done, we'll get to the one that's coming up in July uh, towards the end of the podcast. Yeah. But let's talk about the more notable ones uh, that you've done in recent years. One that springs to mind uh, is becoming the first woman to abseil off a fan and head lighthouse. Where did this idea come from? And was the challenge more possibly climbing up the incredibly steep stairwell in that lighthouse or the, the abseiling part itself? And you're the first person to ever mention those stairs to me, and I'm so glad you did. I saw the pictures. They were I, I, a nightmare. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> How that actually came about. Um, the person that my climbing mentor is called Ian Miller, okay. and quite a lot of people in Ireland, especially people that follow Outsider, will know Ian. Mm-hmm. He's an absolute legend. Um, I first came across Ian in 2013 through the campaign, whereas one of my challenges I wanted to try. Um, Rock climbing. I'd never done it before. Mm. I wasn't sure with my hip being the way it was. I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to. Um, but I was put in touch with Ian and he's been my, as I said, my mentor ever since with stuff like that, with rock climbing, abseiling, even hill walking and all of that. Mm. Ian himself was actually the first person ever to abseil off Banner's Lighthouse. So it's, I think it might have been him that gave me the idea, okay. him or somebody else that just suggested it. Um, I used to write a column for the local paper here and during that time I would um, often ask the public to challenge me because mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges is actually coming up with the challenges. Um, <laughs> you know, you get to a point where you just run out of ideas. Yeah. So it was it was either Ian or somebody else that actually suggested why not mm. abseil off Planet Lighthouse and I could have spent my entire life and I never would have thought of that as an option because mm. I just... When you look at a lighthouse, you you look at it for what it is. Mm -hmm. You never think, yeah, that would be a great thing to abseil off. (laughs) But he, you know, they came up with the idea. And I have to say, in terms of organizing, that was probably one of the hardest challenges to make happen because there was so much red tape, which Mm -hmm. is understandable. You know, I'd contact Irish Lights and Dunleary, Mm -hmm. um, speak with uh, the head of the, the whole organization um, because there's such you know there's there's such risks involved mm-hmm. and I could totally see why they needed to kind of make sure everything was going to be okay obviously mm-hmm. I had to have Ian there on the day and um, we had to you know sign things there was there was a lot of organizing mm-hmm. but when, once I was up there once I got past the nightmare of the steps and I stood out and looked out over the sea I just thought oh my god this is yeah. this is a once in a lifetime thing 
Um, the second biggest challenge was getting over that famous red railing. <laughs> that was terrifying mm. because you're you're at any moment you could slip. Now, obviously, I was roped in, mm. but if I was to slip, even while roped in, you know that banging yeah. my leg mm-hmm. off the, the a concrete wall that would have been excruciatingly painful. So mm. I had a lot more fear going around in my head than say the regular person. And mm. then obviously I was quite high up, so. <laughs> There was that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, once we did it once, I was absolutely on cloud nine. We actually ended up doing it two more times after that before we left. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up doing it three times in total. Well, yeah. But it was the photographs, you know, that was in mm-hmm. the early days. I think that was 2015. Mm-hmm. The photographs we got and having those memories to look back on mm-hmm. has helped so much with planning future kind of bigger challenges. Mm. It was amazing. Well, speaking of bigger challenges, if abseiling off a lighthouse is not daring enough, you you up to the level or possibly 100 levels, Nikki, when you decided that uh, scaling a glacier in Iceland, that might sound like fun. What sort of preparation <laughs> went into this and what moments stood out the most for you? Okay, well, this is another one that didn't come from me. Mm-hmm. I met with a photographer um, in twenty. 20- I think it might have been the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. I met him in a coffee shop to discuss some photographs on my website. It was a simple meeting. Walked in, had coffee, walked out with the idea of going to Iceland to scale a glacier. Mm. That's how quickly that idea was <laughs> wow. even put into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been there himself and he just knew that it would be the perfect place to have an absolutely epic adventure. Um, so that whole thing was probably the most surreal at that time anyway the most surreal experience Mm. trying to plan for something like that was a bit of a nightmare because obviously in Ireland we don't get the level of snow that's needed we don't get Mm. enough ice that Mm -hmm. you can you know practice walking on Um, so the only thing I could do was at this stage I had amazing crutches they're called side sticks Mm -hmm. from a Canadian um, company so I reached out to them and obviously being a Canadian company, they're very much geared up for snow and ice. Mm. So I reached out to them and explained what I was hoping to do. Um, and they kindly sent me some attachments for my crutch tips. Okay. So one of them had like a flat base. So obviously it increased the surface area. So rather than sinking in, you would sit on top. Mm-hmm. One of them also had an ice pick. So it allowed me to walk on ice with my crutches. Wow. So people that ice climb will obviously use ice picks and, mm. you know, work their way up. I was able to do that to walk. Mm-hmm. I then knew that when I got there, I would have the use of crampons. So once I started thinking about that, mm-hmm. it became a lot easier because, you know, the the risk of slipping was now completely gone. Mm-hmm. With the crampons on my feet and the little crampons on my crutches, I was I suddenly, you know, that's it, you're safe. Mm-hmm. So all that was left then to do was walk. Uh, the training for that was easily done in Ireland because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've access to so many mountains and hills in Donegal alone that twenty minutes, half an hour away from where I live in Letterkenny, I'm I'm on Mount Ergo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the training for it was relatively easy. Um but the preparation in terms of even dealing with that level of snow, mm. I, I I had to just wait until I got there and just go with it because mm. I you know, I was walking in snow up to my knees that I'd never experienced before. Mm. Um so the the event itself was exhausting for different reasons than most so obviously like if I'm walking with crutches in deep snow the crutches have to be put in and taken out of that snow every single time 
So if you can, I'm doing the actions here as I'm speaking to you, you obviously can't see, but if um, (laughs) you're putting your crutches in and you're lifting them entirely out again to put them back in, Mm -hmm. your whole shoulder joint has to be pushed up towards your ears and back down again. So very early on, my shoulders were burning. Mm. Um, Your hands are, you know, it's it's the areas of you that you wouldn't think, you know, your legs are Mm -hmm. almost the least, they're in the least uh, pain. It's your upper body that really suffers with stuff like that. But I have to say, the things I saw on that trip um, and the, the people I met, I, it was w- definitely a once in a lifetime. Mm. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, another once in a lifetime uh, moment that you had, Nikki, is when you uh, attempted to break uh, the world record for the fastest to five kilometers done on crutches. <laughs> I read, though, that you missed out on the record by just one second. I mean, how did that news hit you? Were you irritated, disappointed, determined perhaps to, to do it again? There was so much. <laughs> it was like a, an emotional roller coaster yeah. surrounding this challenge. Um, but I have to say, it was, it turned out, it couldn't have worked out better. Um, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Mm-hmm. So just to explain a little bit what happened, mm. I was actually told, um, when I was told by my consultants back in 2015 that there's nothing more they could do for me, mm-hmm. I lost from that day to about 2015, very, very a year and a half, because it was the summer of 2013. Um, I lost a lot of leg length discrepancy, or a lot of leg length. So I now have a, a 11 centimeter leg length discrepancy, which is quite a significant yeah. mm-hmm. difference in both legs. So I decided to ask for a second opinion because I was, I, I was too young to just be dealing with all of this and not have any doctors in Ireland that were taking care of my case. Mm. So I was sent to um, Birmingham where I went over to the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital and during one of my meetings over there, I was told that I was actually going to lose my leg eventually, that the blo- the bone was now completely dead. Mm-hmm. Um, there was literally nothing that could be done surgery-wise and it was just now a case of, you know, we could try one surgery that is has a 50% mm-hmm infection rate um, which was way too high so yeah. I just decided I wasn't going to down that road so I've been left now almost in limbo waiting for this entire right leg to mm-hmm. be taken off which is absolutely just huge news to be given to anybody yeah. so when I was given that news I came back to Ireland and again like the other big bits of information I was given over the years I gave myself enough time to allow it to sink in mm-hmm. but instead of getting down about it and stuff I really wanted to find a way to make the most of this situation and if I did become an amputee you know how could I almost prepare for that time and make the most of being an amputee Mm. which sounds weird but like you know there's things like um, you know the Olympics and stuff um, the Paralympics there would be huge opportunities that would actually become available to me if I was an amputee sounds crazy but (laughs) it's true Um, so I went online and I started looking for people that were amputees that um You know, I just went onto Instagram and Googled, I think I might have Googled amputees, just to see what would come up. And I found a guy called Michael Robert Brands, who was a one-legged athlete living in Holland. Mm -hmm. Michael had lost his leg to cancer. Um, He'd actually had three amputations. Um, He'd had his lower leg amputated, then above the knee, and then eventually he lost it completely, all from a cancer diagnosis. And when you go on Michael's Instagram page, the absolute last thing you'd probably notice is that he's an amputee. Mm. He's six foot, I don't even know, seven or something. He's like really tall. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an athlete. He now owns his own CrossFit gym. Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to do one-legged box jumps. He's just an wow. absolute machine of a man. And I was blown away by him. So I, 
like anybody, you know, when you find somebody inspirational, you follow them on social media. So I had been following Michael for not that long, probably a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And while this was happening, I had applied to Guinness. Um, I put my application in for the 5K mm-hmm. um, and was just awaiting news, waiting confirmation. And one day I was scrolling through Instagram and Michael had put up a post himself saying that he was so happy that his application for the fastest 5K on crutches in the male category had been accepted by Guinness. So he had applied without me knowing he had applied for the exact same (laughs) record in the male category. And I just thought the coincidence of this is way too much. So I sent him a message and I just said, I just explained briefly that Mm -hmm. I've been following his account and that I couldn't believe you know, the coincidence, I explained that I'd also applied. Mm-hmm. So there, and he got back to me straight away and he said, oh my God, we have to have a Skype call. Mm. So I was, even that made me quite nervous. I'd never Skyped a stranger before. <laughs> um, being on video call with a stranger was quite a, a weird experience, mm-hmm. but within minutes of speaking to him, I it was like I knew him my whole life. I think we spoke for an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, we barely spoke about the record at all. We just spoke about our lives mm-hmm. and it was just such a, it was like therapy. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, and I asked him all the questions that I had about amputation and, you know, the, the fears that I had. During that call, we decided that considering there was such a big coincidence in us applying for both of our records, mm. why not do them together? Mm. Why not do our own records together in the same country? Mm. So I just decided, you know what? Yes, he had a team of people that was helping him. He mm-hmm. um, was much more organized than I was. So it made more sense for me to go to him. Mm. And, the you know, as part of um, Guinness, you have to have all the, the paperwork, there's a huge amount of paperwork that goes along with the record. Mm. You have to have officials there on the day, timekeepers, all of that. So he had all of that already organized. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was easy for me to go over and just slot in mm. to his day. Um, so that's exactly what we did. We went to uh, Tilburg in Holland and we both did our records. I came back, I met some amazing people, mm-hmm. made some great friendships, came back to Ireland, submitted my evidence and sat back and waited for my certificate to <laughs> pop through the letterbox. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks passed and I didn't hear anything. And one of the guys actually from Holland just messaged me one day and asked, had I been on the Guinness website recently? And I just felt a rising feeling of panic. You know, why is he asking this question? Mm -hmm. So he told me where to go on to the, you know, my own record. Um, I type in my own record and my heart just dropped. Mm. Um, There was a woman from America called Anna. Mm -hmm was there as the new record holder who had completed 5K in 44 minute 20 seconds, I think was her mm-hmm. time, 44.20. Mm-hmm. And I'd done it in 44.21. <laughs> what had happened was, mm-hmm. because Guinness takes so long to update their website, yeah. this woman, Anna, had actually done her record back in March of that year. Okay. I didn't do it until June. Mm-hmm. But because they, they took so long, they'd left the previous record holder up. <laughs> so when I travelled to Holland, I thought I had to beat a time of 49 seconds, 49 minutes, 53 seconds, which is a huge amount of time to do a yeah. 5K. So when I did it in the 44, yeah, you shattered I thought, it. Oh my God, I, I <laughs> smashed it. I was delighted <laughs> with myself. And what was most sickening was on the last lap, I'd actually slowed down because one of the rules is that you are not allowed to touch you know, it's a, it's a one-legged race, mm. so I actually had to strap my other leg up. Yeah. And if my toe even grazed off the ground, that would have been it. I would have mm. been completely, like, immediately disqualified. Wow. So I'd actually slow down on the last lap because I knew I had the record. Well, I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want, you know, on the last lap for my toe to touch the ground, so I'd slowed down. If I had have just not even sped up, but if I had have known to just keep the same pace, mm. 
Anna in America's record wouldn't have actually counted and I still would have become the new record holder. But, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, everything happens for a Mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. So many people said to me since, would you do it again? You know, you would obviously get the record if if that's all you had to beat. Mm. I don't think I would have got anything from doing it again other than that piece of paper from Guinness. The coincidence that led to me going to Holland, meeting Michael, who I'm still friends with to this day. We actually had a year friend anniversary the following year where mm-hmm. I'm back over and I took part in my first obstacle course race in Amsterdam and mm-hmm. um, you know I've made an incredible friendship with somebody that when I do face amputation he's going to be my mm-hmm. go-to person Um all of that happened for a reason to yeah. prepare me for the road that I will face going back and doing that record again is, is would only be for my own ego yeah. and you know I just don't need that so I it, it was annoying at the time mm-hmm. but it was, the, and it's made for a great story as well. Yeah, so, and also a great lesson in making every second count. So, <laughs> it's there's so much that came from it. So yeah. it's all good. Well, Nikki, you've, that's a brilliant story, and you've got so many more, and others we we won't have enough time to to speak about. But have you ever thought about uh, putting them all together and writing a book? Perhaps is that something you're interested in doing? I would absolutely love to write a book, and it's been something that I think we all have that thing that just that long term goal that hangs over us and taunts us Mm. every couple of months and a book it has been that thing for so many years I started one about six or seven years ago and I have the files on my computer but for whatever reason I just have this thing that just stops me from really getting stuck in Mm. so who knows maybe you know maybe (laughs) subconsciously I'm waiting for that big thing to happen to allow me to keep going but it is it's definitely on the cards Mm. um but it's, it, I don't think it's going to be finished today or tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Well, I would be the first to buy that book if it ever does uh, get published. <laughs> but you. but but for the time being, Nikki, I'm going to rely on the videos you post every now and then on your YouTube channel. Uh, one of the videos yeah. I came across uh, and found rather interesting is where you spoke about having a disability does not make someone an inspiration and, and how it can lose its meaning. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Yeah, okay. So it sounded like, you know, I'm, I made that video in the hope that people would understand exactly what I meant and not take offence from yeah. it. Um, as a crutch user and, you know, as somebody that's gone through what I have, I'm regularly referred to as an inspiration. And mm-hmm. it's, for starters, as, as an Irish person, you know, Irish people in general are very, we don't take kind of compliments well. We get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to change the subject. <laughs> so when I'm called something as big as an inspiration, I initially want to cringe. Um, because w- when I look at people like Michael, who is genuinely out there paving the way for others, I would see him as an inspiration. But mm. And also, more importantly, what I mentioned in that video, the everyday person, mm-hmm. I would personally find more inspiring. The people that get up every single day and go and do whatever it is, whether it's go to a job that they really hate because mm-hmm. they have a family that, that needs that support, yeah. um, or whether it's, you know, I mentioned again in that video, there's a couple of women that train in my gym um, and they'll be closer to my mum's age and they are there no matter what day I decide to train, they're mm. there. Yeah. I like It's like they have a couple of themselves or they never leave and in the best possible way. They've obviously made a decision that exercise and a healthy lifestyle is, is going to be their go-to thing um, and they're not just sitting at home outside of the gym doing nothing. You know, they all have, you know, some of them have their own businesses. Yeah. Most of them have children that they're, 
bringing up. They have very busy lives anyway, but they're in the gym. They're so dedicated. And what really inspires me by them is that they don't lose that dedication. And that's something that I personally can't say happens to me. Mm. You know, I fall in and out of um, feeling inspired and feeling dedicated to, to continue with something. I have little dips where I just, if I'm honest, can't be bothered. Um, they never seem to have that. They're so consistent with their training and with their lifestyle. And I just find people like that, are they're showing the rest of us, you know, this is what you should be doing. Um, and I think that just because I'm on crutches doesn't mean that I should be given this honour. Um, we, we should all have to work towards being, you know, a role model or an inspiration to others. Um, and I just, I kind of wanted to say that be careful how often you use words like that because yeah. they can lose their meaning mm-hmm. and it can sometimes be an insult to possibly people out there that are really like firefighters, you yeah. know, police people, people that are risking their lives every single day mm. um, who are possibly going under the radar a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I suppose I just wanted us to be, everybody to be mindful of that and mm. kind of look at the, look at your next door neighbour. You know, they could yeah. be doing volunteer work every single weekend that just because they're not making videos about it like I am doesn't mean that they're not mm-hmm. inspirations in their own right. Yeah, I just love the way you put that message across in that particular video. Now, Nikki, you've touched on this once or twice earlier on and it's the topic around your leg possibly having to be amputated. How do you feel about that right now? Have you come to terms with it or is it a reality that you're only going to look at and think about uh, if and when it needs to happen? It's one that when I got the news initially, it was obviously all I could think about for a while um, and it was so terrifying the thought of it. Um, It's one now that I don't allow myself to think about regularly because that's where you fall into that trap of just you're not living, you're just existing and you're just mm-hmm. waiting for the inevitable. And I've done that with various surgeries over the years where I just waited mm-hmm. and it's, it's a horrible thing to do. So now I've just, you know, for the most part, I put it to the back of my mind. But there are days where I can't help but think about it. Um, and there, there's certain examples that often pop into my mind. You know, if I go into a coffee shop mm-hmm. um, and order a coffee by myself and walk back out to my car and get into my car, mm-hmm. that action wouldn't be able to be done if I had two crutches all the time because I'm an amputee. So at the moment, mm-hmm. I walk short distance with one crutch, which means that I have one free hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows me then to do things like carry my own coffee or carry my handbag, you know, stuff that gives me independence. Yeah. Um, as an amputee, all of that would change. And that makes me sad. Yeah. Um, and th- those kind of little moments where I'm, or if I'm, say, if I'm standing in a queue in the bank, I often think, you know, if I was standing here as an amputee by myself, how would I feel? You know, would I be feeling absolute overwhelming anxiety at the fact that I know every set of eyes on me or are on me because of, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a a leg missing. So these are the things that I'm thinking now. But after meeting Michael and after kind of doing a little bit of research, I'm starting to realize that a lot of that's in my own head. Mm -hmm. You know, just because I think they're all looking at me doesn't yeah. mean they are. Yeah. Um. I need to stop being so self-obsessed. <laughs> they're they're probably in their own minds thinking about their own thoughts mm-hmm. and their own worries. But they, you know, a lot of it will will just have to when when the operation happens, mm-hmm. I'll just have to kind of learn as I go because there is there's no real way to prepare for no. such huge loss. Yeah. 
um, especially considering I'll be having the entire leg removed from mm. the hip joint. So I can't even have a prosthesis, okay. um, you know, a limb, prosthetic limb mm-hmm. um, put on. You see some of the really cool limbs that um, Paralympic runners use, you know, the blades. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, if I was able to have one of them, I'd be delighted. <laughs> um, I think they look so cool. Mm. There's, You know, um, that whole world has come on so much. The design of these, they've been taken way more into account for active lifestyles. Um, and I really do wish that I was facing that type of an amputation if I had to face it at all. But unfortunately, mm. there's nothing that there'll be nothing that I'll be able to put into a prosthetic limb. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you lose your leg from um, below the knee, you have a stump mm-hmm. that can then go into a prosthetic limb. I'll have nothing, so I'll just have to get used to having one leg. Yeah. Um, so for the most part, I'm just living my everyday life and not allowing myself to think too far ahead. Mm. My consultant said that, you know, they have absolutely no idea when this might happen, mm-hmm. that my hip is essentially hanging on by, not by a thread, but not by much. Mm. So I could have a bad fall and that could be it. Or I could spend a couple of years the way I am now, mm-hmm. just possibly slowly over time getting a bit worse. Yeah. So I'm just kind of, it's it's been my motivation to do as much as I can now while I still have the leg and mm-hmm. um, I see this as my moment of opportunity to do better things mm-hmm. um, and then when the time comes I'll, ha- I'll just deal with it then. Yeah I suppose so. Well Nikki from your experiences in hospital and in the gym and the numerous adventures and challenges you've been on it makes sense that you, you would take knowledge away from that and apply it in some way. You've done that because at the end of last year you, you launched the Motivation Factory in your own words, what is the purpose of creating the service you offer and, and what has the response been like so far? Well, in the early days of setting up the campaign, people started approaching me um, to have me go into schools or their groups just mm-hmm. to, to deliver a talk of some description, usually on a motivational level. Um, and as somebody that was very much not comfortable with speaking publicly at the time, mm-hmm. it was the thought of it was terrifying. But thankfully, over the years, the you know, every, everybody knows the more you do something, the easier it gets. Mm. Um, and I enjoyed, once I got over the fear um, and I was actually on stage sharing my story or sharing specific parts of different things that had happened, mm-hmm. um, I really enjoyed that feeling. Speaking to people afterwards, hearing their stories, I really enjoyed. And emailing people, like, you know, having emails come in from people that were there, mm. that whole experience was such a positive one for me it was almost yeah. like therapy for me mm-hmm. um, that I decided that I had a couple of projects on the go and this this just came about naturally mm-hmm. um, to to set up a proper motivational speaking service mm-hmm. um, and to get a, you know, a website up and running I was working for a website company at the time mm-hmm. so I was working in a perfect industry to be able to get a website up and running and just to kind of push myself out of my comfort zone as well so mm-hmm. it was a little bit you know there was a couple of reasons why I did it I wanted to be able to use what had happened in as positive a way as, as I could, but also to test myself and to kind of just to see what I could do on a professional level um, and, and really much take it from there. Like everything that I've I've done over mm. the years, it's all happened naturally. And I've just gone with like a, the whole idea from Australia to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do start thinking like that, opportunities arise. And like that's the, one of the biggest things I say to people now, like by saying yes to things and not overthinking it and doubting yourself by just going along with it, mm. 
you will really surprise yourself what you can actually achieve. Mm. And that's pretty much how the Motivation Factory came about. <laughs> wow. Well, on your website, uh, www.themotivationfactory.ie, th- there's a section on there about the Four Peak Challenge. I, I-, I told you earlier we were going to touch on this uh, next uh, massive <laughs> challenge you're about to undertake in the next few months. Tell our listeners more about this and how have uh, your preparations been coming along for this? Okay, so the Four Peak Challenge will hands down be the biggest challenge I've ever undertaken it'll require me climbing four Irish mountain peaks in under 24 hours and it's my first proper fundraiser I'm hoping to raise about 50,000 if not more euro for Mm -hmm. three cancer charities here in Ireland Um, that in itself having a fundraiser on the go is terrifying because the thought of not reaching your goal or it not working that really does scare me Um, but it's been it's been a great challenge in itself Um, the training for that has been quite intense. Um, the more I walk, the more you know road time I get or mountain time I get, the, the harder it is on my joints. Mm. And I have to be mindful of that because obviously I only have one body and it's the only one I'm ever going to have. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to find the balance between training and resting. Um, and I'm finding now, even as we're getting closer to the challenge, you know, I'm starting to see issues in my shoulders, in my wrists getting pins and needles in my fingers, all of that just from training because it, it's just so tough going. Um, so as I mentioned, that you know, being in the gym, doing r- rigorous uh, or vigorous um, training regimes and then going out and doing long stretches of walking, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what the training requires. Um, and then doing a bit of work at home, just kind of, you know, stationary movements and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's pretty much the training in a nutshell, but it has been tough going at times I have to be honest mm. and you mentioned obviously that uh, you're raising uh, uh, money for uh, three cancer charities there but what sort of financial support do you require to undertake such a challenge the best thing about it there actually shouldn't be if, if my plan comes together mm-hmm. there shouldn't be any reason for it to cost us pretty much anything mm-hmm. because the great thing is climbing mountains is free yeah. um, I'm doing it in Ireland mm-hmm. where I already live the only thing I require is a camper van, which I'm going to speak to some people here in Donegal and just guilt them into giving me one. Um, I am have received loads of support from um, local businesses. Um, I'm going to have a very small team. I have a brilliant photographer who's going to come along and he's offering his services free of charge. Mm-hmm. Ian Miller is also coming along with us. So we have actually the photographer is Joe is it Landron from Outsider? Mm-hmm. He um, At the Outsider Awards, he came up and said that he wanted to do a challenge himself. So he's offered his services free of charge wow. and has been absolutely incredible, just even in terms of giving me advice. Mm. Um, so everybody that, you know, people that I didn't even expect to offer help have come forward. Mm. So, so far it hasn't cost us anything and really it shouldn't. Mm. So it means that every cent raised will go directly towards three charities and just to mention those three charities, mm-hmm. it's the Ross Nugent Foundation, who are based in Malahide in Dublin, Action Cancer, who are based in Belfast, and the Irish Cancer Society. Fantastic. And Nikki, are you worried at all, concerned that this challenge, it could possibly be the one that leads you to needing to have your leg amputated? Because just one more dislocation, that's it. The doctors can't operate again. Not really in this case, because to be honest, my leg isn't really doing a huge amount of work. Mm-hmm. Once I'm on two crutches, 
um, the bulk of my weight goes through my upper body. Mm-hmm. If I was doing this on one crutch, then yes, I would pretty much be signing myself in for surgery afterwards. Yeah. And to be honest, I would never take that risk because it's, it's an unnecessary risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it anyway, but <laughs> uh, two crutches, the, the bulk of the weight is going through my upper body and my good leg. Okay. So where I actually have to pay more attention is to the joints in say my good hip on my left hand side mm-hmm. and my shoulders all of that so I'll have a physio and my friend Lorraine Boyce is going to meet us on the day and help me out with you know doing physio in between climbs mm-hmm. because I know that I will I'll seize up completely in between mm-hmm. um, so I, I have a plan in place to help the rest of my joints but in terms of my right leg and um, the weaker leg it's mm-hmm. it actually should be fine okay. it'll probably have the easiest run of it the whole day. Oh, no, that's great to hear. Well, lastly, Nikki, after taking on the Four Peak Challenge, what are some of the other crazy things that you've got planned for the rest of 2018 and into next year? Well, I've recently started working with Triathlon Ireland and the person that sent the, the opportunity my way was actually my first trainer, Michael Black, who has been big into triathlons and has worked with them for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he always said to me, you have to try a triathlon. And I always said no because I assumed it was too hard to do um, because it involves cycling, something which I can't do. Yeah. Uh, my leg, doesn't, my hip doesn't have the movement to go t- to stay on the pedal the whole way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd initially said no. I'm also, I was also a weak swimmer and I obviously can't run. So I was like, the three things you have to do in a triathlon, I can't do any of them. <laughs> but actually, when you break that down and look at it from a different point of view, I could hand cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, Triathlon Ireland ha- actually have a hand cycle so I, or a hand bicycle mm-hmm. so I would have access to that if I wanted I don't have to run I could obviously just hop along on my crutches and I had adult swimming lessons last year as one of my challenges mm-hmm. um, so I'm now a stronger swimmer so me saying no to a triathlon now seems a little bit silly mm-hmm. so that'll be something that's probably on the cards on a bigger scale I want to start travelling to different countries and taking on challenges mm-hmm. outside of Ireland because what I noticed with Iceland and the few trips to Holland, I also did the fan dance in mm-hmm. Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, fan dance is 24-kilometre trek through the Brecon Beacons. Is that when you do a challenge outside of Ireland, it takes on a whole world of other issues and things that you have to, obstacles you have to overcome in a good way. Mm. You know, you have to incorporate the, the travel time um, in terms of my body getting sore. And, you know, you just have to plan so much more. And I really actually enjoy that. Yeah. kind of that extra struggle almost and obviously you know there's so many amazing things happening around the world that I would like to try stuff like sit skiing mm-hmm. um, where you basically sit on one blade and go for it I've never skied in my life so mm-hmm. if I was to attempt something like that it would be I would be learning from the very beginning so I think that would be an absolutely epic challenge to work towards mm-hmm. um, but other than that I'm not allowing myself to put any plans kind of to have concrete plans until I get the four peak out of the way because I don't want to split my focus Um, and I'm stressed enough with this one so (laughs) I think that's enough for now (laughs) I can fully understand well it's difficult not to say that you are an inspirational person Nikki but I will (laughs) say that you are definitely motivating Uh, we wish you all the best for the four peak challenge in July and uh, what lies ahead after that thank you for taking the time to join us on the Hard as Nails podcast thank you so much for having me